We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. On 8 May 1945, the German commander of Prague, General Rudolf Toussaint, signed an instrument of surrender with the Czech resistance. The deal was that the resistance would let the German armed forces leave the city without being shot at. Toussaint lamented, Who am I now? A general without an army. All I can do is go home and sit in the ditch and look at the blue sky. The next morning, a convoy of German armoured vehicles and trucks left the city. One brutal totalitarian regime had left Czechoslovakia. That same afternoon, a column of the Red Army arrived in the city. The Czechs had just switched one cruel oppressor for another, the communists. It would be another 44 years before they would win their freedom from that one. With one brief period, when a false illusion of hope would lift their spirits only to be cruelly dashed. This program looks at that, oh, so brief period of hope. By 1967, the people of Prague were getting restless. One night at Prague Technical University Strahov dormitory, the lights went out. Power outages, it seems, were a feature then of the communist government and are still a feature common to the left today. Something to do with their ideology and how it's implemented This night, that blackout was the last straw. The students went out into the quadrangle and started to protest, chanting, We want light! It didn't just mean from electricity. Perhaps it was the eternal division from when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. While Stalin had proclaimed, the devil is a communist. Since Stalin had at one time been studying to become a priest, I guess he should know. Sounds right. The police arrived and weighed into the students with batons and tear gas. Nothing of this was reported in the media. In late 1967, Leonid Brezhnev visited Prague. He was the head of the Communist Party, which meant the head of the Soviet Union. It seemed that the problems in Czechoslovakia that were being reported to him by the Russian secret police embedded into Czechoslovakia came down to having an unpopular leader, one Antonin Novotny. On 5 January 1968, his resignation was announced and the new first secretary appointed was one Alexander Dubček. He was young, only 47, a Slav, and he wanted to bring in a new form of communism, communism with a human face to Czechoslovakia. Freedoms unknown in any communist state started to blossom under Dubček's leadership. He answered the calls from the street protests sweeping Prague. He loosened up the communist stranglehold on everyday life. His government went so far as to stop enforcing the censorship, that is always the hallmark of communist left thinking. Dubček had real charisma. 
but he was nothing if not a true believer in communism. He had no intention to take his country away from that faith. But other communist leaders of East Berlin, Warsaw and Ukraine complained that what he was doing was a creeping virus seeping through their borders, creating unrest among their young people. The East German leader clamped down on all business and personal travel to and from Czechoslovakia, a country he saw becoming a window to the West. Just 12 years before this, in 1965, Hungary had started to liberalise and the Soviets and other Warsaw Pact countries had invaded it to snuff out the first signs of freedom. Dubček was reminded of this, but he was confident that he was not going to turn his back on communism like the Hungarians had wanted to do, and all would be well. On 23 March 1968, Dubček and senior party officials were summoned to Dresden for what was supposed to be a routine meeting on economic cooperation with Russia and other members of the Soviet bloc. When the Czech delegation arrived, they were confronted with a united front of communist leaders from Poland, Hungary, East Germany, Bulgaria and the USSR, all seeing the danger of what the communists called counter-revolution, breeding off the liberal reforms in Czechoslovakia. They warned that these situations can easily lead from a dangerous turn in domestic affairs to a danger that can spread to the external affairs affecting endangering the entire socialist camp. Notwithstanding the rather clear warning that Dubček had just been given, on 1 April 1968, the Central Committee in Prague announced an action program calling for the introduction of more democracy, rehabilitation for the victims of the recently deceased Stalin, and more freedom for Slovakia. Western media got really excited by these dramatic winds of change sweeping through Czechoslovakia. They called it the Prague Spring. That May Day parade of 1968 in Prague was like nothing ever before. It was a giant party. Students marched with a banner which read, Dubček, hold out for us. Dubček saw this as revitalising communism, restoring enthusiasm to it, which is strange since there never had been any enthusiasm for communism in the first place. Increasing exasperation with Dubček in Moscow resulted in him being summoned to Moscow this time in early May 1968. He was warned that what was happening in Czechoslovakia was threatening communism internationally and had to be reined in. Now the Czech media, in a misguided sign of solidarity with Dubček, openly criticised the Communist Party. Not a good thing for a political system that did not like any criticism ever. But Dubček couldn't seem to stop what was happening. His heart was not in stopping it anyway. In June 1968, the Czech Central Committee removed all press censorship. There were now calls for Czechoslovakia to move towards a multi-party democracy, where even the Communist Party would have to compete in an open market for votes if it was to hold any seats in the parliament. Communists don't like people having an alternative. As the summer came on, people thronged the streets in Prague and other Czech cities. They were enjoying freedoms that many of them had never experienced before. Much older Czechs, you had to have been at least 40-plus, could remember back to the days before Hitler came in 1938. 
But right now in the Eastern Bloc of 1968, there was no mood for reform. It had only been six years before that that the communists had suddenly built the wall in Berlin to stop people leaving their workers' paradise. You would know something was wrong when St. Peter had to lock the gates of heaven to stop people leaving. Communism was a regime that offered nothing to its people and had to lock them in to stop the massive drain of people fleeing to the west through Berlin. Did Dubček think that things had changed so much that Czechoslovakia, his country, could have the freedoms that he was giving his people despite serious warnings from his fellow comrades in Russia and other countries of Eastern Europe to stop? Dubček was now being called to frequent meetings with Brezhnev and other Eastern Bloc leaders. On 1 August 1968, at a Warsaw Pact summit, the Slovak hardliner Vasil Bilk met with the Ukrainian party boss Petro Shelest in the men's room and handed him a letter signed by eight members of the Czechoslovak Presidium which said that Dubček was waging political and psychological terror against the communists in Prague. The letter warned that the gains of socialism in Czechoslovakia were under threat and requested Soviet military intervention if circumstances should so warrant to block the path of counter-revolution. On 15 August, Dubček was phoned by Brezhnev. Brezhnev complained that censorship of the media to prevent criticism of the Soviet Union had not been put into place. Dubček said that he had spoken to the heads of the media, asking them to tone down their comments. Brezhnev replied, But Sasha, we agreed that all mass media... The press, radio, television will be brought under the control of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. What I'm getting at here is that you're deceiving us. I'm not able to regard it as anything other than deceit. At Brezhnev's request, Dubček met with the Hungarian leader, Janos Kadar, on the banks of the Danube River. He was sympathetic to Dubček's position, but warned of unforeseeable consequences if you fail to do Brezhnev's bidding. Do you really not know the kind of people you're dealing with? In Prague, the popular West German music program called Europarty rolled into town. Shirley Bassey mimed Goldfinger at a construction site and performed Big Spender on Narodny Street. The Moody Blues had rocked into town as well for this program, on the Malastrana end of the Charles Bridge, with the backdrop of the medieval towers of that bridge perfectly complementing their song, they performed The Knights in White Satin. It was only hours before this national party was to be brutally brought to an end. Later that night, well actually it was after midnight, so it was the next day, 21 August 1968, with the rock concert Euro Party over and all packed up and gone home to West Germany, a 24-year-old student, Yaroslav Kovaricic, was walking home. After a night out drinking with his friends, life in Prague was just a never-ending party at this time, before he reached his apartment in Malastrana at about 1.30am, he heard the sound of planes droning overhead. It was too dark to see anything. That was odd. He hit the sack. A few hours later, a friend called. He said, the Russians are here. Jaroslav ran downstairs and out onto the street. 
There he saw tanks, their tracks squeaking and clanking as they negotiated the cobblestones on the narrow streets. Now Yaroslav realised that he'd heard the first Russian planes flying into Prague airport to secure it for follow-up waves. Hours later, an entire Russian airborne division's troops had been landed and were ready to spread out into the city. In the central committee building, a late-night meeting of the Presidium was taking place when Aldrich Chernik burst into the room. He announced that more than 200,000 Soviet Union troops with four other Warsaw Pact armies had invaded Czechoslovakia. The Warsaw Pact now had the remarkable achievement of having twice invaded member states, Hungary in 1956 and now Czechoslovakia, with friends like that. As I keep stressing, Dubček was a loyal communist. He loved communism. He announced to the room, This is my own personal tragedy. I have always loved Russia. I have devoted my entire life to cooperating with the Soviet Union. And this is what they've done to me? Two of the eight members of the Presidium, who had betrayed their country to the Russians, now switched back to supporting Dubček again. A bit late. A resolution was passed, seven to four, stating that the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia was a breach of international law. Nevertheless, the Czech army was ordered to remain in its barracks. Dubček didn't want bloodshed. At 4am, Dubček, who had now gone back to his office, saw a black Volga sedan, followed by a convoy of tanks and armoured cars, cross over the Lavaka Bridge. A crowd, standing on the bridge and blocking the convoy, did not move. One of the Russian soldiers opened fire with his machine gun, killing one man. When the convoy arrived at the Central Committee building, Soviet paratroopers leapt out and surrounded the building. Taxi drivers were now driving around the streets, honking their horns to wake the people of Prague up to what was happening. People tuned into the radio to find out more. The invaders hadn't occupied the radio station. That was a serious error. People in the early morning darkness moved up to Vinohoradska Street where the radio station was, some still in their pyjamas, to protect it from the inevitable arrival of Russians who were trying to shut it down while Radio Free Prague was spreading the news. This is Radio Prague, Czechoslovakia, the legitimate voice of occupied Czechoslovakia. Prague has woken up into a fifth day under foreign occupation. The occupation units are changing and reinforcing their units stationed in Prague and in other parts of Czechoslovakia. At this moment, the estimated number of troops stationed on Czechoslovak territory is 600,000. The unity of the people, except for a handful of traitors and collaborators, which have forever been expelled from the nation, is absolute. But at 8.30 a.m., the Russians came. Six tanks. The people had erected a barricade, including a tram that had been dragged there and tipped onto its side. The tanks easily smashed through the obstructions. A protester threw a Molotov cocktail, which set one of the tanks on fire. Then an ammunition truck near it exploded. The Russian soldiers, mostly conscripts like in Ukraine today, panicked. They opened fire with everything they had. Well, not the main armaments on the tanks. 17 protesters were killed. Another 65 people were wounded by small arms fire and grenade fragments. Crowds thronged into Wenceslas Square. The tank crews were abused and told to go back to where they came from. The Soviet soldiers were bewildered, 
like the Russian soldiers that went into Ukraine, they'd been told that they would be welcomed as liberators overthrowing Western counter-revolutionaries. The Soviet troops in Wenceslas Square now started to panic and fired machine guns into the crowd. It scattered. A friend, Yaroslav, the student who had returned to his bed late that morning, was in the square. When the firing started, he made to scatter. But a commander on a Russian tank made eye contact with him and gestured to Yaroslav to come over to him. The officer leapt out of his tank and onto the ground. When Yaroslav reached him, the tank commander embraced him. With tears in his eyes, he said, It was Brizhnev, it was Brizhnev who ordered us to do this. I am a soldier. I see what we have done here, and I am so sorry. Now both men were weeping. The young Russian said that he was from Leningrad. He was married, and that he and his wife had just had a young son. Meanwhile, Dubček had been taken prisoner and was being flown back to Moscow. Throughout the traumatic events of that Prague spring, one song captured the mood of the people. It was a song, a prayer for Marta, sung by the achingly beautiful Marta Kubisova. She publicly supported the Prague Spring, dashing up to Dubček as he was being led down the steps from the Central Committee building by the paratroopers, giving him a bunch of roses and a medallion of an angel to wear on his wrist. The words of a song were the words written by a 17th century Czech exile, John Amos Comentus. Let peace remain long within this land, malice, envy, fear and strife, let them pass. Let them finally pass. Marta Kubisova became a symbol for national resistance and inspiration during the Prague Spring, and she would have a moment again in the sun in 21 years' time. Dubček returned to Czechoslovakia and had to tell the people that he had gone astray and that they were to return to the old ways. In April 1969, Dubček resigned after suffering medical problems. The Soviets occupied Czechoslovakia for the next 22 years, it would not be until 1989 that the suffering that began in September 1938 would finally end in what was known as the Velvet Revolution. But that's for my next program. But with one little tie-in in this program before I finish that story, Yaroslav left Czechoslovakia after the Russian invasion and migrated to Australia. He became a presenter of classical music programs on ABC Radio National. When the Velvet Revolution happened, he was contacted by Jana Vent, herself a girl from Czechoslovakia. She asked if he would come to Czechoslovakia with her to make a documentary about his emotional journey back to his homeland. After the documentary was completed, Yaroslav wandered into Wenceslas Square. Near midnight, he was sitting at a kiosk ordering a beer when he saw some young people around a young man sitting on a box playing a guitar. They were all singing. Yaroslav enjoyed the music and then bought a beer for the young guitarist who was Russian. He asked the young man where he was from. He said Leningrad. The young man asked Yaroslav where he was from, and he told him that he had migrated to Australia after the Russian occupation of Czechoslovakia in 1968, and said to the young man, I'm sure you don't know anything about that. The young man replied, The invasion? Yaroslav asked him how he knew about it. He said, I was born in Leningrad that year. My father was a tank commander and had been sent here as part of the invasion. When he came back, it was years later. He told us all about the invasion, he felt so ashamed. Was this the son of the tank commander Yaroslav had met and spoken with all those years ago? On the night after the invasion of Czechoslovakia in London, the Russian State Symphony Orchestra performed at the Albert Hall. Included in the orchestra's repertoire that night was the Serenade in E, composed by the Czech composer Dvorak. The orchestra was heckled with calls of shame on you. Rather poor taste. 
Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you can catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning, starting at 10.30am. Probably the best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing from the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer, probably the world's best beer. If you like this program, you will definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. 